start preaching this morning, and that is our, um, the teaching class that I'll be running coming Wednesday. I am under no illusion that I am the only person in this church um, that's called to teach uh, the Bible. We know that some of you have this very deep desire placed on your heart by God to teach the Bible, and so we want to equip people for that. We want to equip you to teach the Bible. And um, some of you might be brand new at this, and some of you might be a little bit further along. And so we're going to go over um, really fun stuff like Bible teaching theory and teaching theory. And we're going to go over what an inductive and imperative means in a message. We're going to go over all kinds of different things. And so ultimately, we have a, we have a great pool of people who could preach here at this church. But what we're looking to do is equip the kingdom of God more and more so that you could preach. Maybe you're not called to preach up on a stage to a church. Maybe you're more called to, to preach in a different environment. And so we want to equip you to do that. We want to equip you to read your Bible and study it for all that it's worth um, because it's actually a difficult thing to do um, on top of reading the Bible. I mean, there's in one sense, it's, it could be the simplest of things to read your Bible. But in the other sense, it's a 2,000-year-old document that needs cultural interpretation as well. You need to understand what was happening at the time. You'll learn fun words like sits in Laban, and you'll be able to impress your friends. <laughs> oh, I'm only kidding. If you impress your friends with theology, then you've got friends. <laughs> kidding. But uh, I'd love to see you guys come out to that. Anybody that wants to come out to that on Wednesday, uh, starting at 7 p.m., so we're continuing our series um, in the Sermon on the Mount. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a little break from that because we have a healing service coming up. But today, we're going to dive through this idea of judgment. Have you ever noticed that our culture loves judgment? We love it. Everybody says, don't judge me. I don't want to be judged. Everybody says that. But have you noticed that there's a fall guy for everything? If you watch, just watch the nightly news. It's like something happens and how do we blame anybody we can blame? It somehow makes us feel better to blame people for our problems rather than taking responsibility, right? I mean, think about some of the names after 9-11, the Great Recession, some of the, the names that you hear. You hear Wall Street a lot. You heard Bernie Madoff. That might sound familiar. Bankers, bankers ultimately, when every time I heard about bankers on the news, they were essentially like agents of Satan or something. I, I, but we look for people to blame. Mortgage bankers, mortgage-backed mortgage back securities, hedge fund managers. I mean, we, our culture is insistent that we have people to blame for our own problems. Isn't that right? Our mind goes immediately to people or to groups. We do this in our own lives as well. Whenever something happens, we think, how can we shift the blame to somebody else? How can we see somebody else at fault and make myself feel better about it in the process? Have you ever felt judged? Have you ever, has somebody ever blamed you for something? Has anybody here ever been blamed for something? Maybe they did or didn't even do. Yeah, it hurts, huh? It's not fun. It does not feel good. It does not feel good to be judged. So the Bible is real clear, and Jesus is real clear about how we shouldn't be doing this, that this is not our place in the world. And if we as Christians say that we're really different from the world, then this is really where it should really be most obvious, 
right, is this sense of judging and blaming everybody else for our own problems. It should become most obvious in our own lives that we don't do that, that we take responsibility for our stuff. But what is the biggest criticism of the church today? We feel judged. We feel judged. I don't want to go to church. I feel like I'd be judged. Now, there's some legitimate claims there. I mean, there's people, they're speaking out of experience. Maybe some ultra-religious person in their family, or maybe it's um, somebody in their family or somebody, friend, somebody at work that has judged them in the past. Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, flip with me open to Matthew 7. It'll be up on the screens, and also we have the, on the Bible app, we have a live event either on your phone or your iPad or your Android device or whatever screen you have in front of you. Go ahead and check that out. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to look what Jesus has to say on the matter. He starts out by saying, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Marketplace terminology. The measures. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your own brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample under them under their feet. And turn and tear you to pieces. That's a highly misinterpreted chunk of scripture. We're going to get there today. But first, I wanted to start out by saying, isn't it amazing how our culture finds being judgmental as just a normal part of life? The top 10 reality TV shows in 2011 and 2012, let me list them for you. American Idol Performance, The Voice Performance, American Idol Results, X Factor Performance, X Factor Factor Results. The Voice, Survivor South Pacific, America's Got Talent, Survivor One World, and Dancing with the Stars. What do all these shows have in common, except for the Survivors? They have a panel of judges. We love to watch these shows on TV. These are getting millions and millions and millions of viewers watching these shows because we love it when Simon Cowell rips somebody to shreds, right? Right? And we all secretly want to be like Simon Cowell, right? You think, oh no, that guy's a jerk. I would never do that. Except for you know you want to do it. Deep down inside, that guy is mean to you at work, and you're like, oh, I'm going to be like Simon Cowell to him. I don't even know if he's on that show anymore. I think he's not. But um, you think, I want, to be, <laughs> I want to tear that guy to shreds. We think in our minds how we might rip somebody down after they've, they've really gotten to us, don't we? We love judgment. The reality is we live in a world of hypocrisy. We live in a world that says, don't judge me, and yet we love watching people get judged. The shows that didn't make it on the list were all the Real Housewives shows, but they were up there too. That's all that's happening is producers are getting people in a room and saying, judge them for for their stuff. Judge them for what they just said. Judge them, judge them, judge them. It's just amazing in our culture that Nobody likes to be judged, but we all love watching it happen. What happens to our humanity? What happens to our culture? What happens to our world? What is Jesus talking about here 
when you get judged. I think the best example is Survivor. When you get judged that you're not worthy, you get kicked off the island, right? Right? That's what happens. I've never seen the show. That's, that's what happens, right? Okay. When you, I mean, actually, that's not true. I saw the finale of the very first episode or the very first season of Survivor when I was like in high school and it was all the rage. Um, I'm still amazed people are watching that show. Um, but essentially, you feel condemned because the very nature, the core essence of the word judged means condemned. And it means that you feel unworthy. And the most clear example of this is getting kicked out of the island or getting kicked out of your community. When you get judged, you feel like you no longer belong, right? And this is a problem, especially in the church, because we belong to one another through the very person of Jesus Christ. Mother Teresa, I think, said it the best. Paul says it all over, all over his writings. But Mother Teresa, I think, says it best. He's, he, she says, when we hurt, harm each other, we've forgotten that we've belonged to one another in the person of Jesus, that Jesus is the head and we are the rest of the body. We make that up. We work together. But we live in a culture that feels the condemnation. They feel it. And they just want to be worthy of love, right? I mean, you look at kids and they're cutting themselves. They're doing drugs. They're taking naked pictures of themselves and texting them to their friends. They just want to feel loved. We live in an entire society that just wants to feel loved. And yet, we're seeing the effects of condemnation. People feeling like they don't fit in. People feeling like they don't belong. Well, friends, you do not need to prove that you're worthy of love. Jesus Christ has already proven that for you with his work on the cross. You do not need to prove that you're worthy of love. So many times we go through life because of our feeling of unworthiness, because of our feeling of being condemned, we do things to prove that we're worthy of God's love. And it comes out in really strange ways. God has already proven that you are worthy of love. Let's look at Colossians 1, 15 through 17 real fast. Paul says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and I want you to get this, and in Him all things hold together. In Him all things hold together, which means All of humanity is held together somehow in the person of Jesus Christ. God holds us all together, especially the body that is the church. So Jesus says, when you judge, you'll be judged on that same measure. A lot of times that simply just happens to us here on earth. We judge somebody and then it comes right back on us in a very practical way. And sometimes that happens in the time of judgment. But here what Jesus is is kind of referring to is, I mean, when you think about this, is the effects of the entire community. Now, have you ever been at work and somebody's gossiped about somebody else? We primarily live in small communities, right? Of a hundred or so. You know, your friends, your family, your your work, your church. Um, Maybe there's baseball games and soccer games and and school people and things like that. But we primarily go from little community to community, community, community. 
when we're being judged in one of those communities or when we're judging somebody else in one of those communities, we're condemning, making them feel unworthy and making them feel like they're outside of, of the inclusive circle that we've built, which affects the entire community, doesn't it? When there's a problem going on inside a church, everybody feels it. When there's a problem going on inside of your work, everybody feels it. Somehow, Colossians 1.17 is right. Jesus has us all held together. And somehow we're, 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 we're so connected that we feel each other's problems, we feel each other's burdens, we feel each other's pain. So there's an effect on somebody else, especially, and it's most noticeable in like your workplace or your, your family, when somebody else is being judged, when somebody else is being uh, looked down upon. It's most notable there. So judgment is simply a problem uh, that, that we have in our world. It's something that we're almost wired to do. And Jesus wants to rewire us with his character so that we don't act like that. In fact, Jesus gave us an example how to not act like that. We're going to get there in a second. But sometimes you're in a position. You think, okay, well, Pastor Dave, I'm not supposed to judge anybody. Fine, I got that. But what happens when somebody really does need correction? And that's, that happens all the time, right? People screw up, and you're maybe in a position of leadership, and, and, and you need to simply help them along to do the right thing. The Scripture talks about two things, and, and um, rather, we'd have to flip to like three different places in the Bible. So rather than doing that, I think I'd just tell you. Um, gentleness, which is controlled power. Gentleness, controlled power. Nobody did that better than my friend and, and mentor, Gordon Coulter. Um, I preached a sermon one time that was, uh, I don't even remember. I, I don't even, I, I, something didn't come across right. I was up there fumbling the whole time. And, and Gordon really helped develop me as a preacher. He, he gave me feedback and stuff. And I remember one day going out to lunch with him, and I thought, I know exactly what this lunch is about because I did not do well on Sunday. And uh, I sat down with him. And he simply said, so how do you think it went on Sunday? And I was, I was so hard on myself. And he just talked me through it real quiet-like, and I, I mean, it got me to the point where I realized, oh, I've, I get it. I, I get what I did wrong, and I didn't feel condemned because Gordon had been there himself. He understood. He didn't come to me for, with this, this era of, I've got it all figured out. He had been there himself. I'm sure, I mean, I, although I hadn't seen it, I'm sure in the past, Lindy, he's preached some bad sermons, right? One or two, <laughs> at least, in the past, he's preached one or two uh, rough sermons. We all have. But he came to me with gentleness and humbleness because he'd been there. He'd been there. And he simply said, what, what happened wrong? And I self-diagnosed and we, fixed, we figured out what happened wrong and what was said right and what was said wrong. And, and we fixed it for the next time. And at the end, we came out with a better and deeper relationship. Because judging harms a relationship. But going to somebody with gentleness, which is controlled power, controlling that power that you have. Because, I mean, he could have fired me. He could have, he could have said, you're sweeping floors. He was my boss, you know? He could have said, you're sweeping floors. You're washing toilets. All, you know, you're, you're doing this, you're doing that. But he just gently walked me through that issue. And we became deeper and closer as a result. Judging pushes away and alienates while using gentleness 
brings people together. The second thing is honesty. Um, the Bible talks about truth and love, going to people with truth and love. Being completely honest about what's going on. Telling the truth about what you observed and how you feel about it. If you ever have to go to somebody, it solves a lot of problems later if you simply are honest with them. If you simply say, hey, this is what happened. So instead of judging, instead of saying, you did this wrong and you're, you're wrong here and I think you, this is the reason why you did this, you simply go to that person in gentleness and honesty. This is how I felt when it happened. As a result of being there before, I, I see what's going on here. Gentleness and honesty are key in all of this. But in order to get to gentleness, we need to drop contempt from our life. So many of us have contempt, and you can see it all over your face. Let me give you a biblical example of what contempt looks like. Luke 18, 19 through four, or, I'm sorry, 9 through 14. To some who were very confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. That's contempt. Looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you the truth, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And uh, maybe you don't know this, but the prayer, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, became the first prayer of the early church. As they were being persecuted and going around from town to town spreading the gospel, that became the mantra and the prayer of the early church. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We know what condemnation is. We feel it all the time. And condemnation comes out of a deep spirit and a deep attitude of contempt. But I think the reality is, is when we drop contempt from our soul, then condemnation rarely happens. When you drop contempt from your soul, then condemnation rarely happens. Why does condemnation get into, even get into our toolkit for life? Somehow we've got this thing, and it's kind of like in our tool bag. We know that if we condemn somebody or judge somebody, make them feel unworthy, we can get them to do stuff. We realize that it has a far deeper effect on people than does anger. We realize that when we mess with people's worthiness, then we can control them. We realize that we can actually become like God to them, and they need to prove their own worthiness to us and do what we want them to do. That's how contempt and condemnation and judging gets in our toolkit for life. And it becomes one of these things that once it's in there, it's so hard to get rid of because it's a deep-seated attitude in your heart. And there even seems to be something righteous about condemnation. Like the Pharisee, God, thanks that I'm not like these people. And I don't know what you do when um, sometimes, like when I drive, I, you know, obviously I'm a saint when I drive and I don't speed and I don't drive like other people. That's not true. Um, 
I just drive to San Clemente twice. I did a wedding in San Clemente rehearsal. And if you ever had to drive down there during midday rush hour, you, oh, this attitude of judgment. God was working on me. God was working on me. But you, it gets in your toolkit for life. It just comes on out. And you think, God, thank God I'm not like that driver over there who's cutting in and out of people. That guy's crazy. You know, and you begin, it starts small, but you begin to do that. One day, when I was still in college, um, doing my undergrad at Cal Poly Pomona, there's a guy holding a sign. I've told this story before. The sign was condemning people. And he was a Christian guy, and he was trying to get people's attention. And it basically said, uh, girls in short skirts, you're sinners. Um, People that are walking by and you don't read the Bible, you're a sinner. I mean, basically, he's calling everybody a sinner. And I walked up to him, and I just said, so how's this working for you? <laughs> and it occurred to me that I, and he told me I'm the only one that stopped and had a conversation with him the whole day. I said, so do you think you're being effective here? <laughs> and and he, he was like, well, no, I think everybody going by sees the sign. It's very out there. And I said, yeah, it's very out there. But do you think it's actually drawing people into what you want for them, the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? And uh, he's, hey, oh, absolutely. I mean, he was sold out on this. Absolutely. I disagreed. In fact, there's this verse, 2 Corinthians 3.9, and Paul's talking about the law here, but he says, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Now, there was a ministry out there that brings condemnation. The law, what, what he's talking about, the Old Testament law, showed you where you're wrong, showed you where you're to be condemned. And Paul's like, yeah, that's one way of doing it. You know, you could go out and say, you're wrong here, you're going to hell here, you're going to go to hell if you don't do this, you're going to go to hell, and blah, 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 blah. That's one way of doing it. But Paul says, how much better is the ministry that brings out righteousness? How much better is the ministry of grace? How much better is the ministry that you don't have to prove that you're worthy of love, that Jesus already proved that for you? How much better is that ministry? So much better is the answer. So much better. We must be aware of the thought, it's okay to condemn others for good reasons. There's almost never a good reason to condemn others. We have to believe that when it comes to vengeance or when it comes to condemning others, that God's got that. And that's not our function in the world. So how do we solve this problem of condemning others? Let's go right back to this text. When you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, and pay no attention to the plank in your own. I'm sorry, why do you pay, look at, sorry, I had a wedding and a funeral yesterday, and it's just like coming out of my mouth right now. So a little tired, had a little extra coffee this morning. Let's push through this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus again tells a joke. And I mean, I understand that we don't understand first century jokes, but last week we talked about the question, how many birds are you worth? When Jesus talked about worrying, he, he simply said, how many birds do you think you're worth? You know, and we valued John as like, a, what, a parakeet or something? A, a dozen pigeons? Matt, you've at least got a parrot, and, you know, 
How many birds are you worth? You can't quantify that. Jesus is telling a joke here, just like he's saying, I mean, people would have laughed out loud when he said, you know, you try and go after that little speck of sawdust. You got to remember Jesus is a carpenter, so he knows about all this stuff. He said, but you have a giant plank in your own eye. You, you can't see, and you can't put a plank in your own eye. I mean, we're probably talking about a, a 12 foot by, by 4 foot wide board that Jesus is talking about here. You have a plank in your own eye. So how do we get around being judgmental? I think what Jesus is saying is, first look at yourself, and as you begin to examine yourself in a deeper way and realize what is going on inside there, maybe you pray, pray the psalm, oh God, search me and show me your truth. As search me and show me the error of my ways. As you pray this prayer and realize you grow in humility, then you become qualified to look at the speck in somebody else's eye. You're not qualified right now. I mean, think about it as a terms of qualifications, of, of having the right credentials in order to do this. If you haven't spent time saying, God, what's going on inside my own life? God, where is it that I'm broken? Because correcting somebody else ultimately comes out of a deep-seated place of having been there. That's the most powerful correction, right? Because if you don't get it, if, if you're just condemning somebody else, they're thinking, you've never been here, and you lose relationship. But Jesus talks about taking out the plank out of your own eye, the very obvious stuff that's going on inside you. I think that is the way that we remove contempt out of our soul and out of our lives. Is that we search within and say, God, would you search me and show me what's going on inside here? Galatians 6, 1 through 2 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Notice how Paul says here, you who are spiritual or you who are living in the spirit should restore him. What he's saying here, when you really translate that out to our normal everyday English is, you who are mature Christians, people who understand, people who've been there, people who've gone through and processed your own junk, you're the ones that are qualified to restore other people. But if you're self-righteous and you're filled with contempt, you have no business helping to restore other people. So this brings us to really our next chunk of Scripture here, which is very um, misinterpreted over the years. But simply, this all starts by realizing our own need for forgiveness. So Jesus, after all this judgment stuff, goes and says this, which is a very cryptic thing, and we'll break it down for you. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do... They may trample them under their feet and tear you to pieces. So over the years, people have interpreted this as do not give good things to people that don't deserve them. That could not be further from what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, he is saying, beware of giving good things to people. He is saying that, but here's what he means. If you actually had a dog and a pig up here, and you actually brought like a dog a Bible to eat, and you brought a pig, a, group, a bunch of pearls to eat, something that's not helpful to them at all, and they can't digest them, they're eventually going to turn on you and eat you 
because you're at least edible, right? That's what they're going to do. And you have to understand, first century dogs and pigs are completely unclean animals in the Jewish world. Dogs were wild. They had a reputation for snatching babies and eating them. Yeah, this is pretty wild. Um, when I was in Israel, that's why I was so scared when I was in Israel and ran into a Bedouin dog out in the middle of the desert. I was a little bit scared by that. Luckily, Bear Grylls saved me. And I'll tell you that story later. I've, I've already told you that story. Bear Grylls wasn't actually there. I just followed Bear Grylls' advice. Anyways. So this is not the clearest of statements, but what Jesus is saying is don't force good things on people that don't want them. See, restoration and correction can actually be a good thing. Jesus went through the New Testament rebuking. The Pharisees went through the, Old, uh, the New Testament accusing. Now, there's a really important dynamic that happens here. The word rebuke means to honor somebody because you love them and care for them in such a way that you bring them and guide them into the real truth into the real air of their ways because you care for them so much you don't want to see them go down that path that's what that means and so what jesus is saying is if you're forcing these good things on people that don't even care that don't want it then they're eventually going to turn on you. It's, it's actually a commentary of what the Pharisees were doing because they had the law, which was good, but they were shoving it down to people's throats and condemning them. And then when they didn't meet up to their standards, they would condemn them even more rather than help them walk through life in a way that was good and pleasing to God. When somebody's having a problem with life, you don't just walk up to them and say, here, read that. You'll, you'll do better. You don't do that, right? I mean, obviously, some people need some guidance in all of this. You don't just shove a Bible down their throat and say, read it. You clearly need this. What you do is you simply walk through life with them. That's an example of giving pearls to pigs or giving what's sacred to a dog. Jesus is simply saying, stop shoving good things down people's throats without at least helping them along the way first because they need a little bit of background information before you just shove it down their throat. So today, maybe you're here and you're thinking, wow, I do quite a bit of judging against other people and that needs to stop. So maybe for you today, your prayer is, oh God, search me and show me the error of my ways. God, help me remove this plank that's out of my eye. Or maybe you've felt the effect of condemnation. Maybe you've felt the effect of brokenness. Maybe you've felt like you're on Survivor and somebody's cast you off the island. And you're simply saying, God, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of anything. I'm not worthy of people's love. I'm not worthy of of you. But I think what Jesus wants to tell you today is that I paid the price. I demonstrated how worthy you are of my love by hanging on the cross for you and by taking up my life again. So maybe you're here this morning and we simply just need to pray in one of those two directions. God, search me. Or God, um, show me how worthy I am of your love. As the band comes, I'd like to just lead us in this moment of prayer. Father, Today, there's some of us here who are 
simply judgmental people. God, we don't mean to do it. It just is something that's thrown into our tool bag of life. And, and we just hurl it out on people and we hurt people. And God, we pray that you would change our hearts. God, we pray that you would change our lives. And God, that you would um, simply search us and help us see what it is about us that needs to change. God, would you remove condemnation from our heart and from our soul? And God, would you help us to see people your way, to be gentle and to be humble with them? Father, people from any background, any walk of life, help us to remove any of the, the, the prejudices that come up over a lifetime and to look at people the way you do. And God, maybe there's some people here today that simply do not feel worthy. God, we declare right now that they are worthy of your love, that you have already paid the price for them, that they do not any longer need to prove that they are worthy of love. But God, that you have paid that price for us, and you have proven and shown us that that we are worthy of love. So maybe some of you right now just need to say, yes, Jesus, that's me. And to say, yeah, I need to accept that right now. I need to accept your love, and I need to put my confidence in you. We just pray that that would be between you and God right now, that you would do that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.